I'd like you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Colossians chapter 2. Right now, on our Sunday night messages, I'm doing some topical things here and there, and it'll probably be that way through the rest of the year, uh, especially since we're coming around the holidays and we have messages that need to be preached on certain passages. But Colossians is one of those books that I think we might do a verse by verse on our Sunday night series because it's so rich. It's very deep. There's a lot of depth in this book. And I think it's an encouragement that we go through the Bible verse by verse. I, I think that's a good way to study the Word. Uh, you'll, you'll be able to spot when somebody's cherry-picking and just putting verses together to make them say what they already believe to be true. But in Colossians chapter 2, in verses 6 and 7, we have that the idea of the Christians abounding, not just uh, simply rooted and established and all those different things, but the abounding of the Christian comes through thankfulness. This holiday is very special to me. I don't know why. It's just always been a good time. I, I was raised from a young age to be a thankful person, but I started to realize as I got older, there's a difference from just, you know, saying thank you and being thankful. There's a major difference. Uh, a lot of times, you can tell when somebody's fake, disingenuous, they kind of have that fake $20 smile, you know, everything looks good on the outside, but you can tell that they really don't believe what they're saying. And I think we can fall into that same type of definition if we're just saying thank you and not being thankful. Thankfulness starts here, inside of us. It's not something that we can go and buy at the store. It's not something that we can get from somebody else, although we can see it and it can impact us. We can see thankfulness in other people, and that in turn can impact us. But thankfulness starts, it's a state of mind. And if we all just take a minute and put away the stuff that we have to do this week, all of the things that have to be prepared, the food that has to be bought, the travel arrangements that have to be made, all these different things, if we just put that away for a moment and we dwell mentally on the goodness of God, it should be overwhelming. Because we get busy with things. We get busy taking care of things. And that can be a good distraction. Matter of fact, a part of the grieving process is delayed for many people, especially people in the family that lose somebody, because of all the things they have to do. Somebody passes away, you've got to organize what you're going to do with their body, you have to organize the services, you have to organize the speakers, you have to get the family together, you've got to communicate all that information. And the grieving process can be delayed because you're just busy doing other things. It's not just that way with grief, it's that way with thankfulness too. We can get so overwhelmed with what we have to do that we forget why we're doing it. And from a young age in my life, I was taught to be thankful, to say thank you. And I would be very good at saying thankful, or excuse me, saying thank you, you know, that's good. But as I got older and the world began to have more of an effect on me, very selfish person is what ended up coming out. You know, I think a lot of times with kids, especially when they're moving from that eighth grade to ninth grade and they meet with that career counselor, this idea of the whole world revolves around them starts to come into fruition. <clears throat> what do I mean by that? I'm not saying that, that guidance counselors are bad or planning a career is bad, but a lot of times kids from as early as ninth grade are told, 
you know, it's up to you what you want to do. You can be whatever you want. You know, you are the main character in your story. And while that has some good elements, there's an overall selfish, um, idolatry mindset. We build something to ourselves. You know, the most important thing we can do when we graduate high school is go make money for yourself. You know, set yourself up. And then we're, we're gearing kids to go through life very selfishly to think only about their own material gain. Not saying this is that way with everybody, but I remember there was a teacher in my life in 11th grade. Her name was Miss Miranda. She's one of those teachers that loved her job. She taught English and literature, and when she would talk about the books that we were reading and all these different things, you started to see these books were not just paragraphs and words and sentences thrown together, but they were thoughts and ideas that the author was trying to graphically express through storytelling but I remember one time Miss Miranda, she sat me down and she said, why are you not doing all that you can do? Now I was a classic high schooler. What do I mean by that? C's get degrees, baby. And I was just doing whatever I could to get the grade. If you got an A, then you had to try really hard and that's no fun. If you got an F, then you had to go back and get an F again and that's no fun. So if you just do the minimum amount of effort, you can cheat the system, you can have fun and everything will be great. Well, obviously, that's not a good way to live life. Can you imagine if we're just going through life trying to get a C? We're going to stand before the Lord and he's going to give us a C. Boy, that would, we, we would really miss some opportunity. But I remember she sat me down and she was saying, why are you not doing all that you can do? And you know, for the first time, I started to think that I'm wasting time, that I was just trying to get through four years. By the way, when you're in high school, you measure life in that set of four years, right? You go in a freshman, you're like, I can't wait to be a senior. Then you graduate, and all of a sudden, four sets of four years go by, and you're like, Whoa, what happened? It's just everything happens so quickly. But while you're in that period of time, it, it seems like forever. But I was right in the middle of my high school career, and I was doing the best I could with what I had, but I was not doing the best. I was doing the minimum. And she called me out on that. She knew that I went to church. Uh, I had missed a uh, a lot of uh, assignments and things like that. She knew that I was a Christian because I had started to do some Bible study stuff. I did not do very well. I was afraid of the persecution from the world, and that stopped me from sharing my faith. But she knew what kind of person I could be, and she challenged me. She just asked me this question, are you thankful for what God has done for you? Now, I don't know what kind of gospel message Miss Miranda has. I don't know if she's a saved individual, um, but I know that she was getting me to focus on the fact that your thankfulness should affect how you live. It's not just enough to say thank you, God, in a prayer, although we can do that. But you have to do more than that in order to see the benefits of it. Colossians chapter 2 gives us a very good model of how we demonstrate thankfulness. Look at what this says in verse 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord... This is a very important verb that we see here. So what? Sit ye in him? It says walk. So walk ye in him. Verse 7 gives us four different evidences, so to speak. And I know we get a little dangerous with that word because there's a lot of people that say there's evidences that you're really saved, and we know that's not true, but there is evidence of growth. Jesus said there's, you're going to bear fruit. That fruit is going to be profitable. Matthew chapter 5, uh, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, 
that your good works should be seen by men and they glorify the Father. So there is evidence for walking with the Lord. And here's what those evidences are. Take a look here in verse 7. Rooted, number one, built up in him, number two, established in the faith, number three, as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Rooted, obviously, this is the idea of salvation. We were lost without Jesus Christ. We were of all, uh, of all of our intents and purposes. We could never come to the condition that was required in order for us to uh, get eternal life by our own means. That's why Jesus had to do what he did. He shed his blood on the cross and made the payment for our sin. When you put your faith in him, you're now planted in him. I'm not a gardener. If the, if the world, if, if it depended on me to provide food for us, we're going to be absent from the body very quickly. If people have the green thumb, I have the thumb of death. There's a very funny scene from a very precious movie in my life, Charlie Brown Christmas movie, y'all know what I'm talking about? You remember the part where he's going to look for a tree and he finds this really dinky, sad-looking tree, but it does have needles on it. I mean, it could be... It would be a sad tree, but it is a tree. <laughs> this always just, I don't know why this made me laugh so hard as a kid. But remember when he puts the ornament on it and it sags so sadly? And then something happens and the ornament like snaps off and all of the pine needles just fall off that tree. And, and he just looks at it and he says, why does everything I touch die? And it just as a kid, I just thought that was so funny. And that, that's how my gardening is, by the way. Why does everything I touch die? <laughs> I'm just watering it. Well, you watered it too much. You drowned it. Well, no one told me that. I didn't know. <laughs> this is not the idea of us planting ourselves in Christ and then maintaining our eternal life. When we're planted in Him, we're planted in life. And this life is something that is not dependent on us. But that root, that seed of our soul, so to speak, that new birth, it takes hold on to that root. So you're rooted then look at the next instruction here, is built up. This is the idea of the construction of a building. This is growth for the individual and shelter for other people. Think about this ministry as an example. You had a man, Dr. Lindstrom, who sacrificed 40 years of his life, and he built himself up in the faith. And look at, look at how we're, we're reaping from that here today. I think that's a testimony of a man who not only was rooted in that he was born again, but he also grew. And not only did that growth benefit him, but it benefited me, it benefited you. Just as a survey here, how many of you came to understand salvation and, and, and get saved because of the ministry that Dr. Lindstrom had? Raise your hand. That's a lot of people. Dr. Lindstrom's been gone for many, many years, but his influence is still felt there are still people who will watch his YouTube clips on YouTube and leave comments as, as relevant of like three months ago. God is still working through his word and through that man. That was a man who not only was rooted, but he was built up. The same thing is expected of you and me. Well, how do we do that? Well, we'll see this in a moment here. Look at verse three, or excuse me, look at the third part of verse seven. Um, and established in the faith as ye have been taught. So this is a twofold aspect here. If you want to be established, which is firmness, reliability, this is stability, right? You can have a building, but when the storms come, the building doesn't last very long. Uh, that, we definitely understand that here in the state of Florida. 
You saw that hurricane that uh, hit earlier this year. It destroyed that part of the state. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think the landfall speeds were like 130 on the wind, and, and it just there was a very, there's a uh, picture that's now gone viral of a gas station that was turned upside down, and it was right on some flooding water. The flooding water was still, and it was a perfect reflection in the water. You could see the reality was the gas station was flipped over, but in the mirror image of the lake, it looked like it was in proper position. The damage that happened very quickly happened, and it's permanent. They were buildings, they were structures, but they were not safe. This is the difference with someone who understands salvation. They're working on their building, they're growing, but now they need to be established. And this comes through, look at what it says here, as ye have been taught. Now we live in a world today, and and I'm familiar with this because of the work we do at the college, where you can get access to information anywhere around the world. and, And it is readily available. There's a lot of people that are getting access to Bible teaching, but it's not good Bible teaching. I mean, they use the Bible, but they misuse it more often than not. There's two students that are coming to our classes now who are very close to going to the charismatic movement down at the River Church in Tampa Bay, just right down here. Very close to getting into these different schools of thought that twist what the Word says into some type of profit or gain for the individual materialistically here. But the instruction here, and what we try to offer at the college, and just what we try to offer in all of our services, is, look what it says, taught. You have to be present in order to get the teaching. And I'm not talking about you just show up. You can be here right now, but be gone. Do you understand what I'm saying? Some of you just came back. (laughs) But it's important to recognize, you can be physically somewhere, but your physical presence somewhere is not as important as how you're engaging your mind. Do you see the the pattern here? Salvation, verse 7, rooted, built up, this is growth, established now because of the application of what you've been taught. Now you're strong, and look at how you abound. Abounding therein with thanksgiving. Now this doesn't mean in the month of November everybody's Christian life soars because we're going to celebrate thanksgiving. But this is full circle. We've gone rooted, built up, established, thankful. Rooted, built up, established, thankful. Rooted, built up, established, thankful. This is the pattern that we should have. You reach spiritual maturity when you are outside of yourself, meaning you are not living for you. I said this one time in a message about three years ago when I was just starting to pastor. I said, you have to die to yourself. You have to remove yourself from the equation. Now, there's a lot of false piety there. And what do I mean by that? You can be like the Pharisee who said, Oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a sinner, blah, blah, blah. He had all the outward appearance, but Jesus said from that parable, inwardly, he was not right with God. Why? Because he had the humble brag. He was prideful in his demonstration. And that doesn't mean you become a hermit and you just never talk to anybody because you have such a low opinion of yourself. What you need to recognize is you're dead, Christ is alive in you. There's the difference. And that'll get you through hardship, persecution, difficult times, but it'll also help you help other people. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us the body is many members, but it's one body. 
And if the foot were, say, to the hand, I want to be the hand, can you imagine the misfunction of the body when it doesn't work correctly? So our job is not to say, well, I'm better than brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. That's not your job. Your your job should be, how can I help sister so-and-so? How can I help brother so-and-so? This is not happening in a lot of clear churches. You want to know why clear churches are small and vindictive in some ways? Because they're like the church at Ephesus. What was the church at Ephesus' problem when Jesus wrote to them in Revelation 2? It says, you forgot why you're here. You left your first love. Who's the first love for the believer? It should be Jesus Christ. But a lot of people are not being taught that. You know, there is a danger, and I'll say this, and I don't mean to be inflammatory, but there is a danger in becoming sound in doctrine, but hard in love. That's very dangerous. That You will not last. I'm seeing this proved over and over and over. People who know the Bible, they know right from wrong, but they don't love other people. It's destructive. It spreads. Can you imagine if Jesus carried that attitude? He would have done no ministry. Jesus was perfect, folks. Can you imagine what it was like to be around sometimes those knucklehead of the twelve? You remember their discussion right before he went to the cross at the, at the Last Supper. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Some of these guys got mom involved. Hey, can you tell mom who's going to be the best in the kingdom? Obviously, I think it's me. The patience of our Savior, amen? <laughs> this is like, guys, hello, you know? It's important to recognize that we can be sound in theology and hollow in our love. And that's not right. There's a problem there. And you see this in in great soul winners. You see the difference. You see somebody who's patient. I've seen the difference. I've seen people who share the gospel and they're just sharing it so they can say, I shared it. They're leading people to a conclusion. That is not salvation. They're hearing the gospel and they may come to an understanding. But if you're just stuffing words in their mouth for the sake of to get them to say yes, you're really deceiving yourself. When I would go Friday night soul winning, I would make sure, and, and I have great memories with Ryan Pasternak. Ryan's in Ohio now, um, but he, when he was here, when we would go soul winning, we're both big baseball fans, so we'd imagine like everybody that we would talk to was like a runner that could be batted in, you know? And so we'd go and we'd, we'd talk, and there'd be sometimes the hardest looking people, and I mean, they looked like they would assault you. You end up walking up to them and you have the greatest conversations. And the people that look so well put together, I'll never forget it, right out here at Citrus Park, right in front of that Godiva, I went up, I went up to a very well-to-do, put-together-looking set of people, and I got cussed out so loudly. I just wanted to disappear into the Godiva store for many reasons, <laughs> but uh, certainly because I was just being put on blast right there. But I remember, you know, we're, I, was, I was talking to Ryan, and most of the time, some of the most profitable conversations that we had were with people who had questions. And they would say things like, wait a second, you mean to tell me that Jesus paid for all of my sins, even if I go live, and you know what the next thing is, right? Even if I go do the worst sin, I'm still saved? Well, did Jesus pay for all sin? Yeah, get them to answer that question. Yeah. (laughs) Well, is it paid? Well, yeah, but that just doesn't seem right. Right, we shouldn't live that way. But that's the completeness of our salvation. 
he had to pay for it all or he didn't make a payment that was beneficial to us. Sometimes those conversations would take 20, 30 minutes. And I was learning in that, in that time of my life where I was going out Friday night, every night, I learned how profitable it was to love people. They need to see that you care. Now that doesn't mean if they don't see it that you're doing something wrong. There is a worldly mindset too. I've been involved in some conversations with people where you can tell there's something demonic going on. I've seen people's eyes. It's not just like something weird happens with their eyes or something like that, but you can just tell. They check out. And, and all of a sudden, the person that you're talking to, I haven't had any kind of violent response, but I've definitely gotten that <laughs> your call cannot be completed as dialed. That's, that's the best way I can describe it. It's like the line just hung up and, and they're not interested anymore. That's not my fault. I don't know what that person is involved in or what they've given themselves over to. But my job is to love that person. I would go and talk to people, and I wouldn't always give them the same line. I would just be saying, how are you doing today? Can I share some good news with you? Blah, blah, blah. Go through the wallet illustration, and each point was the same point, but it might be in a different way because I want to reach that person. I don't want to just say at the end of the day, well, I gave the seven points. I did my job. There's more than that. You want to do your best to win that person to Christ, and they see God's love through you. You can be a pushy salesman, but you're not helping really anybody. And that's what happens when you idolize sound doctrine and you minimize the importance of love and thankfulness. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and did what? Gave his son for us. He was a propitiation for our sins. That's how we love. That's how you can really sit down and say, thank you, God. And it, it, it should move you to realize the goodness of God. And if that's hard and difficult, you've got some callousness going on. And you need to work that out with God. But being a thankful person is essential to abounding. Read this verse again. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Look in chapter 3. Chapter 3, in verse 17, this is my, my first point here, abounding comes through thanks, uh, thankfulness. My second point, motivation is set through thankfulness. Look in Colossians chapter 3, in verse 17. He gives a whole list here. He starts in verse 1, if you then be risen with Christ, set those things which are, or seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. And he goes through and lists all the deeds of the body that we need to mortify, which means to remove, not to be saved, but because we want to grow. And then he says all the things we need to put on. And he says here in verse 17, this is very important. Whatsoever you do in what? Word or deed. This covers all that you and I could ever do. The things that we say and the things that we do. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God. Now, we brush over this because I think in our culture, giving thanks is saying thank you. It's just making sure you're looking at somebody and telling them thank you for what you've done, blah, blah, blah. This is more, I would rather you never say thankful, but be thankful here. I would rather that. Now, obviously, if you're thankful internally, it will come out externally, but it's not just the external it's not just the words, it's the deeds. And what's the thrust in which we do these things? With thankfulness, look what it says. 
giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. So the thrust of our lives, the reason why we do what we do, should be out of thankfulness of what has already been done for us. A mark of a good leader is doing what he asks his followers to do. The mark of a bad leader is holding expectations in a hypocritical manner. What does that look like? That's a leader who tells everybody what to, <clears throat> what to do and then never does it himself, never demonstrates it. This is why the position of elder and deacon in a church are not for a novice. Now, some would say that means it's not for a young man. I, that doesn't mean that. It means somebody who does not understand what this role requires. My job up here is not to build myself up. I'm not supposed to build and bring attention to the ministry because that's where Brother Jesse is. No, no, I am supposed to exercise humble leadership by serving as Jesus served. And I can't, if I have bitterness, right? If I'm bitter, then how can I be thankful? These things are diametrically opposed. And I can do a lot of good works that are profitable, but internally I'm bitter. And that's, I, I, you cannot grow a church and be bitter at the same time. Can you imagine if I stood up here and I said, love your brother, but I hate you? <laughs> how does that work? It doesn't work. And that's how churches die. They die with the scriptures open, but they're missing the, the entirety of it. Look at verse 16. Right before he said, do all this in the thrust of being thankful, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. The more you know of this book, and the more you do of what this book says, it will be the byproduct, is thankfulness. Selflessness. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Let's look at this word and deed thing. Let's take a look at this. Look in James chapter 3. I like James because James said, listen guys, you got some all capital letter problems. You are saying one thing and doing another. Look in verse 3, or excuse me, verse 1 of James chapter 3. My brethren, be not many <laughs> masters. Now we see masters here, that's the KJV word. This is also understood as teachers. You know, I almost want to, to show you right now, but I'm not going to because I can't trust this iPad as much as I'd like to. The new one's coming out, so Apple is saying, get the new one. I bet you if I opened up the podcast app, I'd lose 20% battery, and I only have 35. But there's, I could probably go on the podcast store right now on, on the, the podcast app, and I could type Christian teaching, and I would have page after page after page of content. And most of it is not biblical. Sometimes I've thought about doing that, like just doing a series where I go to the top 10 podcasts that are called Christian Teaching, whatever they are, and I would play them and listen. How many episodes would it take for me to hear the gospel? How many times would it, how many episodes would it take for me to hear false doctrine? I'd probably get to the false doctrine sooner than the gospel message. Now James is saying here, of believers, now the, the, the difference is, the illustration I just gave you, a lot of those people are not saved. But he says here, James is talking about of believers, his Jewish brethren, 
He's saying not many of you should be teachers, knowing that we, he includes himself as a teacher. Why? Because he is. That's his role. We shall receive the greater condemnation. Now, this is not the condemnation that brings about damnation in hell, but this is at the judgment seat of Christ. The standard for the teacher is higher. That's why not everybody should be a teacher. Verse 2, for in many things we offend all. Now, what does he mean by that? That he's doing an offense in a negative way? No, he's saying the things that we teach, they offend people that are doing wrong. But if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and is also able, excuse me, and able also to bridle the whole body. Now he's saying here, there is no person who is going to be able to speak without offense. This is important to understand. What you say here brings real-world consequences. Look in chapter 4 of James. James chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? By the way, I just think this is very interesting. He's still talking to believers. Isn't it, doesn't this verse alone prove that there is carnality within the believer? Boy, the Calvinists, they don't know what to do with this. Verse 2, you lust, and that means desire, and have not. You kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your desires. This is the problem with carnal believers. They are not thankful. They are selfish. They are more concerned with what can I get instead of what can I give. And you can see here, it is destroying the church when James is writing this. Look at verse 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, my goodness, that's a description of the believer here. Not in their new body, not in their new nature either, but in their old carnal nature. Can you imagine if I got up next Sunday and said, Welcome to Calvary Community Church, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Let's all stand together and sing praises. That's probably not going to go over well. You'd probably go, Pastor, do you have something you want to say? It's like, uh, well, look what he says. Know ye not, don't you know, meaning they should know this, that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So the attitude of selfishness binds yourself to friendship in the world. And it automatically puts you in the traffic lane of correction from your heavenly father. God has not changed. That's one of the biggest messages in Hebrews chapter 10. God has not changed. What he did to disobedient Israel, he will do to the disobedient Christian. He has not all of a sudden just changed into some soft, fluffy, cool dad. I think a lot of people think of God that way because that's what our music is telling people. I don't like when I hear music say, I'm worthy, I'm worthy. No, I'm not. I know the only thing I have is value in my father's eyes. If I were to get what I deserve, I'd be spending an eternity in hell. And God would be justified in that. 
but through His mercy and His love and His kindness demonstrated through Jesus, I am now His child. That changes a man. That should get a man to say, what is this life that I have to live for me when I could live for Him who gave it all? Folks, when I get to heaven, the only designation I'll have is child of God. There's not going to be, you know, in my, in my house up there, whatever it is, it's not going to be like, welcome to, you know, blah, blah, blah on Glory Street Lane. Pastor at Calvary Community Church, pretty cool dad, nailed, uh, nailed the dad jokes quite well. You know, oh, this guy, he, he made a really good tuna sandwich that one time. He's a good guy. Gave of his time, whatever. The only thing I'll have is I'm a child of God. That's it. That's all you want. If that's my eternity, why would I want to live this temporary life for me? And if I do choose to live it for me, I'm not thankful for what I've been given. Still saved, but I missed out on a lot. Read this again at the end of verse 4. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. We know the believer is going to be judged by the things he does. Look in 2 Corinthians 5. I wanted to cover this last week, but we didn't have enough time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 10. By the way, I'm just going to tell you, you know, a little plug here for Bible line. We got some stuff coming out. It's going to blow your mind. Some really good stuff. We were recording this past week. And usually when people send us React videos, I tell Trent, you know, try to split it up so we're not going 50 minutes. Because if you know anything about me, I can go for a long time making commentary. But this one guy, he had 10 minutes of like, Really bad theology. I mean, it was one miss after another. And, and this guy's very popular. He's very venomous towards <laughs> the gospel, of the, uh, um, the good news of the Bible. But I remember we were sitting in the, in the studio, and I was just like, all right, well, we've got to stop there. And I'm only, what, two and a half minutes into his first response. So we got four videos out of it. But these, these next few videos on Bible Line, they're going to be really good. So I really want you to pay attention to them. Because there's a lot of people who follow these false teachers that we're covering. And I don't mean they just, you know, they subscribe to them. They live on every word that they say. I know there's some people here today that are warriors on the internet. They go out there and do the work of an evangelist on that platform. It needs to be done. Because that's where a lot of people's false theology starts. They see something on the internet, bring it into their church, and in two years the church is split. It's dangerous. And the believers are going to give an account Look what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, knowing that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, you would think here, well, there's no sin at the judgment seat of Christ, so why is this described as good and bad? You know, bad is a, is a sinful thing. If we understand this in light of what is said in 1 Corinthians 3, which talks about the same event, we're talking about profitability. That's exactly what James says in chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. It's profitless. It has no value. So at the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to give an account for all the things that were profitless in your life. Do you, do you recognize what giving an account is? Speak. Give word. What a day that'll be. I don't think Jesus is going to be there beating the believer. I think it's going to be strong enough that we're going to sit there and say, I could have done more. And there's going to be a lot of believers that have big, big piles of wood and just a few handful of gems to give. 
and the fire will be there that consumes the adversaries, but we're saved from it, and all that we did and we thought was worth something is burned up. But isn't it good to know that we're welcomed still? But there is something to be said about that judgment. I don't think many of us are, are, are thinking clearly about that. You want to have a lot to give back to the Lord? Be a thankful person. And not just be thankful in word, but sow it. Put it into the ground of your life. Let it bear fruit. Look at verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. He's saying the way that I've lived my life is a revelation to what I preach. He knows the terror of the Lord. Paul has seen things. So he persuades men, regardless of what men would do to him, they ended his life. Remember Agrippa's testimony in Acts? Paul, thou almost convinced me to be a Christian. Some of the saddest words written in Scripture. I hope, I hope Agrippa changed his mind. I really do. Because the time if Agrippa died without faith in Christ, he'll give an account too, but it'll be at the great white throne judgment before the Father, who is not his Father. He is the righteous judge at that point. Look in um, 1 John chapter 3, very quickly. So the judgment seat we just looked at here, we talked about the things that we say in James. 1 John chapter 3 says a lot of things. It's a great book. <coughs> I think that should be on every believer's reading list all the time. This is a very important book to keep us sensitive <clears throat> and to help us realize there's a lot of things we say are right that God says is wrong and there needs to be a change there. First Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 John 3, 16 says this, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. That's action. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's action. So James highlights the importance of what we say why we don't have what we ask for, because it's out of a selfish nature. And John is reminding us this is how we should do things, out of love and thankfulness, and, ought lay, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Verse 17, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother, this is his brother in Christ, have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? If you see your brother who is without suffer and you do not meet the need, you can't say you have God's love working in you because that's not how God loved us. How did God love us? He gave uh, his son. So we should be ready to give our lives, our good for the sake of our brother and sister in Christ. Evidently, in the church that John was writing to or the church collectively, there was a big Emphasis on selfishness. And there was a bunch of false doctrine flying around. But there were problems. They were living carnally and saying they're living righteously. Look at verse 18. My little children, a very... It's a term of endearment here. He uses this phrase a couple different times, but when he uses little children, he's using that, that word techna, which means, you know, little ones. Then there's another word for in, in the Greek, but it, it means kind of like my little pupils or students, so to speak. But he says here in verse 18, let us not love in word. 
neither in tongue. Now, that doesn't say you should never do those things, but in light of what he's teaching here, love in what? Deed and in truth. There's a difference. There's a difference when you merely say something and, you, and the difference between actually doing something. Look at verse 19. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Remember we just talked about that judgment? You're going to be just fine as a, as a believer if you're humble, thankful, and committed to love one another. You'll be just fine. Why? Your heart will be established before him. Your mind up here, you know, I'm, I'm doing right by God. You won't have to worry or fear about the judgment seat of Christ. Beloved, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 20, for if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart. To those believers who don't get right with God, we know that God is greater. You don't have to worry about that. He's not going to reject us. He knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence towards God. What is the heart that does not condemn? It's the one that loves in word and in deed. My last point here is maturity and mindset is gained through thankfulness. So we talked about abounding. We talked about motivation. The actual completeness of your mindset as a believer is gained through thankfulness. Look in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, <coughs> starting in verse 15. Now remember, Ephesians, what church was this? Church in Ephesus. The church that had the first letter from Jesus in Revelation. They picked up what Paul put down, but they left something else on the ground and had to be reminded of it. And isn't it good that Jesus in that letter, he tells them, repent, change your mind, do what you're supposed to do. If you don't change your mind, I'm going to remove your effectiveness. You realize how dangerous that is? That a church that teaches sound doctrine can be removed because they do not love. I think they do it themselves. They do it to themselves. But in Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 15. Seeing then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. So there's the comparison. Don't walk as a foolish, ignorant person. Walk as a wise person. It's circumspectly here. It's like the idea of moving forward and, and, and oscillating. You can see all things, that 360 view. Have you seen those videos of 360 cameras and stuff? They have this stuff down so well that you can't even tell where the camera is. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting, but you get a full view of what's going on around you. That's how we should live our lives. We shouldn't have a blind spot. You know how you get blind spots? Sin. That's what creates blind spots. Verse 16, redeeming the time. This is active. Take use of the time because the days are evil. Are the days evil? Have you been seeing some of the stuff that's being said on college campuses about Israel and Hamas? Folks, the attitude that was in Nazi Germany is in our teaching institutions. It is crazy. The same people that would call uh, President Trump 
would call him a Nazi, they'd literally say the things and, and want the things done that the Nazis wanted to the Jewish people. You hear things like, well, Israel's only been there since 1948. And you're like, no, please crack open a secular history book and just look at what it says about that piece of land. But they're not, people are not in truth. And I'm hearing, this is how I also believe we're very close. It's not going to take much for violence to start. It will not take much because people don't want to hear any, any, uh, each other anymore. You study the Civil War, when the talking stopped and the action started, blood was shed. North and South, they had the, um, they seceded, and guess what? Now, the only way that they talked was through shedding blood of their brother. You study the Civil War, it was brother against brother, and they didn't have instant communication. It took a long time for communication to get around. So armies would come from the south and the north and vice versa, and they don't have a time to talk through things. They're just killing one another. It's, a, it's, it's an amazing history to remember how quickly things can descend into chaos. The days are evil. You as believers need to redeem the time. And that doesn't mean you stop trying to reach the world. You continue to grow, continue to root yourself so that you can be found effective. And know that the world's going in the way it's going. If you think you're going to bring the Lord back in the way that you behave, that's not happening, folks. He's coming back to get us and pull us out of here because it's going to be really bad in the last times, in that tribulation period. Verse 18, be not, or excuse me, 17, wherefore be ye not unwise, that's the second time that that's been mentioned, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. What's the will of the Lord? Well, we know universally God wants all to be saved. He is ever patient until people come to repentance, a change of mind from unbelief to belief in Jesus Christ. God waits. I've seen that in my wife's family. I have seen God's wa uh, God wait. Her grandmother passed away. And I'm, I'm saying she, she was a very old lady, but she was a Catholic all her life. Heard the gospel many times. And a week before she passed away, she put her trust in Jesus Christ as her Savior. God waited. Two days later, she couldn't move, speak, do anything. The goodness of God, amen? He's patient. So we know what the will of the Lord is. But we also know God wants us as his children to love one another. Look at what it says in 18. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is what was said in Colossians. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. This is the operation of this passage. Giving thanks always for all things. I'm really looking forward to Freddie Coyle coming up here and sharing his testimony through his cancer diagnosis and cancer treatment. There's some really good stuff that he's pulled through. But that man gives thanks to God for his situation right now. Many young, immature Christians would think that God hates them when they get a cancer diagnosis. Does God suddenly become evil and wicked because we suffer from sin in this world? How dare his children look at him in that way? Do you know what that's a sign of? Immaturity. I think we can all think back to a time when we were kids and we thought our parents were just the worst for whatever we didn't get that day. 
Oh, I was playing outside for seven hours and my mom told me to come in. Shh, the worst. I didn't get to do anything today. Well, you did play for seven hours. And I don't know. The way, the way it was for me, if I kept coming into the house too much, the next time I jiggle on that door, that thing is locked. <laughs> come back when it's dark outside, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but the immature child is hateful towards his parents, hateful towards those who provide. And you know how dangerous that is for that person to grow into an adult and not learn to be thankful? Even for the things that are difficult? Read this again. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of our salvation, we should be giving thanks as we redeem the time. Romans 8, 28. Oh, people love that. All things work together for good. And they go, oh, it's all good, you know, and, and you know, Mr. Osteen, he'll get up there and he'll just tell you all this stuff. But as soon as your life goes bad, you know what he says? Well, you know, you're, you're not giving enough. You're not asking enough. You got to materialize these things. What? What? Come on. The apostles, all of them, save John, who died of old age, but he also was persecuted. They were all martyred. Well, God just left them in their time of need. They weren't faithful enough. Really? No, it means all things work together to good for them that love uh, the Lord. That starts here, manifested in what you do. Thankfulness is how that comes about. We're going to close in Philippians 4. Would you join me there, please? Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. Like, oh, wait a second, what about verse 6? We, huh? I know verse 6 was there. But I want you to see verse 6, 7, you know, 6 through 9, it sets up the product in verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, when you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. What's he mean here? Well, the church at Philippi, they had wanted to get monetarily, uh, a monetary relief to Paul. They had gathered offerings for him. It couldn't happen at one point. Now it happened. And he says, thank you for that. But he teaches a lesson, a product of the doctrine that he set in verse 6. Here it is realized in verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want. Do you know what that means? Paul lives his life without hoping or wishing that he had that one thing. That would make it all better. He had it all right there in that moment. A man who has nothing to gain. He just, he's got all that there ever could be. Look at how God used him. Look what he says. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned. We know that learning comes at a high cost, does it not? You want to learn how to be able to say to somebody who's lost a relative, I know how you feel, you got to lose one yourself. And it's a hard life. And that's the way it is, folks, but, it's a, but he is a good God, amen? Paul has learned, in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. You want to mark your Bible, highlight that word, content. I know both how to be abased, lowered, 
and how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer, which means allow need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthened me. So there's his source. You want the key to success? You want the key to victory in life? Put your faith in Jesus Christ and then grow in Him. And it doesn't matter if you have little or you have much. You have everything at all times because you are His. Verse 18. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell to a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Make yourself after the fashion of that mindset. You're going to be with people this week that may have not that have not seen you for a year. They know who you are, they're family. But let them see the change in you. And then speak about it. Don't lift yourself up and say, "Oh, I'm here today because, you know, I'm so humble." <laughs> not how humility works. Point them to Christ. Prepare yourself to have gospel conversations with your friends and family. I know there are many of you in here who have relatives who are not saved. What a great opportunity to let the love of God shine through you. It starts with the answer to this question. Are you thankful? Are you thankful? You can tell me, Pastor, I'm thankful, but your life can say different. And it's not my job I'm not going to go to everybody in line and say, all right, show me that you're thankful. You didn't get any of this pie. <laughs> not how it's going to work. You are not going to give an account to me at the judgment seat. You'll give an account to the one who gave his life for you. That motivates me. That keeps me sensitive to the way I'm living my life, the way that I pursue my thoughts, the way that I pray for you. You can close your Bibles. You know, yesterday at that funeral, there are people I never, ever saw before. They, I met them for the first time, and yet I could say to them, I have prayed for you. Our church has prayed for you. Those of you who come on Wednesday nights, you know the depth of Hortense's thankfulness. You know how she reminds us time and time again she reminds us to give thanks to God for His thankfulness. She prays for what? His healing hand on all of us. She prays for the homeless. She prays for those who are in addiction. She asks for those things. It's not because she doesn't have anything better to do. It's because she realizes what God has done for her. You know how wonderful it is that she, as as a daughter in a family now knows where her family is, they're with the Lord. She doesn't have to hope and wonder and guess. 
And she's not content with just letting that be something that she says. She demonstrates it too. She's one of the most faithful people that we have. She's a demonstration of thankfulness. There are many of you, I could keep going, that I have seen your thankfulness. And if there's some of you here today who are selfish people, and you are just caught up in the things of life, and you are a child of God, I want, to just ask yourself, I want you to ask yourself, what is more important, the things or the Savior? I can't answer that question for you, but you can. You can. Gave the gospel yesterday, and I was just so excited. I really was. Because there were 70-something people here that I had never met, and I have no idea what they believe. But man, I was so excited to hear afterwards. When I asked for a raise of hands, I didn't see any, but there were three on the back that they did the absolute minimum. (laughs) Only where the guys in the sound booth could see that they raised their hand. That gave me a lot of joy and peace and comfort. But even if no one came to faith in Christ, I was thankful that I, as a saved man, could be able to share the gospel with other people. I'm living my life in that thrust. I've moved on from just saying thank you all the time, although I do that. I really am a thankful person because I see what God has done for me. And there's all the, there's all the other stuff, right? I've got eternal life. What else, could I, what else could I need? Well, really nothing. I've got a faithful wife. I have a daughter now. That was, that was a dream for so long. A dream. That was something that I, I rarely thought about. But anytime I did think about it, I knew it was something that had to be. God had to do it. And now he's done it. And I don't deserve that. I don't deserve it, but God's good. And I've lost people in my life. And you know what? It's not about whether I deserve that or not. God's still good. I take great comfort in knowing the relatives in my family that have passed away, primarily my mother and my grandmother. I'm just, I'm going to see them soon. I'm not hoping and, 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 and grieving over that. There are many people who have lost loved ones and they don't know where their loved ones are. I'm thankful to know where my mother and my grandmother are. That all comes from Jesus. You trace everything back that because of my eternal life, because of God's sacrifice through the Son, I am what I am today. And if it all were to come crashing down, God's still good. I want that to be communicated to you. We don't move on from the gospel. We don't go into the deeper things of God. The gospel is everything. It's the climax of human history. Who gets all the praise, honor, and glory? The Lord. Now you may be here today and you have no idea where you're going to go when you die. You're working your best, you're trying to be a good person and you think that God will honor that. I mean, that. I understand that mindset because that's what the world teaches. But that's not how we get to heaven. We get to heaven by putting our trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. If this hand were to be you and me, I'll let this block of sin represent sin. We all have sin. God loves us very much. He demonstrated it to us through Jesus Christ. But this sin he hates because the sin separates us from him. 
In order to get to heaven, we have to be absolutely perfect and we all fall short. None of us meet that requirement. That's why we're called sinners. The payment for sin is not good works, it's death. Separation from God forever in hell. World religion teaches if you turn, if you start, if you stop, if you pray a formulaic prayer without understanding anything that it means, if you just do good works, then in the end it'll all be weighed out and your good will outweigh your bad. But the problem is our good works are not a valid form of payment. Somebody's got to die for this. This hand represents Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. God's love for us was demonstrated in the offering of His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, anybody, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is how you can know you have everlasting life. Whosoever, anybody, if you simply put your trust in the shed blood of the Son of God, who died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. His name is Jesus Christ. If you put your trust in Him, He paid for that sin the moment you do. You may not feel any different. The moment you do, you are born again. That is the gospel. It's not religion. It's not the church that you're a member of that gets you to heaven. It's not all your good works that get you to heaven. It's Jesus Christ. And the moment you believe on Him, you're saved. Now, when God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of His Son. You're eternally secured. There's nothing that could ever be done to bring this sin back onto your account and make you required to pay it. He paid it all. That's what we should be thankful for. That'll help you love your enemy. That'll help you love your brother and sister in Christ. That will motivate you to share the gospel, to pray, to study the word that the one who died for you gave. And if you're here today and you don't know where you're going to go when you die, I implore you, humbly and sincerely, to change your mind. Put your trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. The moment you do, you're saved. And praise God for it. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Before we pray for the food in the back, I want to ask if there is anybody here today that says, Pastor, I just got saved. I just understood that I'm a sinner and Jesus paid my price. I put my trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who shed His blood was buried and rose again. I believe that he died for my sin. The Bible says that you're saved now, and I would like to pray for you. As a child of God, there's many blessings and promises that are available to you now and are true. But one of them is that you are eternally secured. So I would like to pray for you. If you are here today and you got saved, would you just let me know by a raised hand? God bless you. I see you. Amen. Anyone else before we close? Raising your hand doesn't save you. There's no pressure there. I, I just want to be able to pray for you. Father, I, I pray for the one that indicated by a raised hand that they put their trust in you. I'm so thankful that of all the things that we're doing today, this was the most important. 
I thank you that they are here today, and I pray that they grow as they are now rooted. I pray that they would grow, be established, and abound in thankfulness. Lord, I pray for that meal in the back. I know it's going to be good. I know it's going to be good. Pray for those out of thankfulness that prepared food to share with our community here. Thankful for our new visitors. Bring us back here safely tonight, but I pray, Lord, we would not take lightly this fellowship that we have with one another. It's a little bit of heaven. In Jesus' name, I pray these things.